We continue this morning on our series on looking at the life of Jesus Christ. And uh, as we started this last week by looking at Isaiah chapter 53, I am really excited about this morning's message. Hopefully you are too by the end. This has more scripture in it than I've had in any sermon I've ever preached before. So we'll see how this one goes. I'm titling this Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And I have to start by giving uh, credit to somebody else's uh, video that I had seen. His name is Pastor Mike Winger, and he actually has a 23-part video series on this topic. And each video is 45 minutes to an hour, and I've made it like through three of them. So it's a fascinating study how the New Testament looks back and paints how we can find Jesus throughout the Old Testament. And uh, so again, this is going to be a very brief overview. Um, We definitely cannot look at the whole topic, but my, my... Goal for today, actually, a few different goals. We want to see how the New Testament, we're going to start here. We're going to look at how many times Jesus and the other New Testament authors, the early apostles, how many times they pointed back to the Old Testament as proof and reference uh, to Jesus Christ. We're also going to learn some principles that'll help us, you know, to how to find Jesus in the Old Testament so we don't go off, uh, go off and, and start making up our own stuff. We want to make sure we stay scriptural while we're looking to see where Jesus is in the Old Testament. We're also going to mention a few examples and types of Jesus that are found in the Old Testament, and we'll just mention those, and we're going to look at one of those in more detail this morning. Starting out, I want to look at just some New Testament passages where they clearly refer back to the Old Testament uh, as proof of Jesus Christ. And the first of these, the, the first several of these are found in the Gospels, their accounts of Jesus. And the first one of these is in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. Luke 4, 16 through 21. Jesus comes to his hometown, to Nazareth, in this passage. So that's where it starts in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as he uh, was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It says here, this was Jesus' custom. And it sounds like it was his custom not only to go to the the temple, you know, the house of the Lord on the Sabbath, but to actually do the reading when he was there. So it was presented to him. He stood up to read like he normally read. But it also sounds like this time he only read a couple, couple verses, as we have them noted for us. You know, a couple short, a short passage here. And then he handed the scroll back. So everybody's sitting there looking at him going, what's he going to say now? because they would traditionally read a big section of a passage through the Bible, and he only read a little short one. And so they're sitting there looking at him, and he says to them, today, scripture, this Old Testament passage, has been fulfilled. Jesus is sitting there saying, this was written about me. Here I am in the Old Testament. They didn't know how to to take that. They didn't know how to uh, discern that and understand what that meant. In John chapter 5, verse 39, again, we have Jesus here in John chapter 5 and verse 39. He's talking to the religious leaders and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness of me. So Jesus says, the scriptures you have bear witness of who I am. These are the same scriptures that you think you have eternal life through them. And they did. They thought that they were, you know, 
if they followed the law perfectly and all these different aspects of the Old, Old Testament that were there. But Jesus said, you kind of missed the main point. I am there throughout the Old Testament and search them and you will find me there. In John chapter 5, verses 45 through 47, a little bit further down in this same passage, John 5, 45 through 47, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, whom you have set on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus is like the Pentateuch, guys, the literal first five books of the Bible that the Israelites based their whole religious uh, existence on, you know, put a lot of, of, of value and credence in that. He said, Moses wrote about me in there. So let's reference some of the major things that Moses wrote about Jesus that we find in the Old Testament. We're just referencing these. Abraham, the father, was called to sacrifice Isaac, his son, in Genesis chapter 22. And here's a principle. Actually, I, I, I passed over one. A very clear principle when you're looking for Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures, if a New Testament author refers to a specific Old Testament scripture and says, this is about Jesus, we know it's about Jesus. When Jesus says to those listening to him, today this passage in Isaiah is fulfilled in your hearing, this is about me. If Jesus said this Old Testament passage is about me, but we know it's about him. There's no question about that. That was one I passed over. Here's another one. When you read in the Old Testament and you're reading a passage and it makes you go, what? Why is that in there? It could well be because there's something more significant to it. And so this passage with Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son, you read that and go, what? But it's because God was giving us a type, an image of what would come when he would give his only son. And Moses wrote about this so, so long before Jesus actually came. And Jesus says to the leaders, like, you read Moses, Moses wrote about me. He wrote about what would happen. Moses wrote about the Passover lamb, which is another one of those, you know, those what instances where God's going to come and destroy all the firstborn. But he says, if you sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost, your house will be protected. That's an image of Jesus being our Passover lamb. Moses wrote about the bread of heaven. He wrote about the smitten rock, which the Bible says is a type of Christ. He wrote about the bronze serpent in the wilderness when everybody was, was um, dying and Moses held up the bronze serpent and people were saved. And that's another one of those, what, passages? But it paints a type of Jesus Christ being lifted up on the cross. Moses also was the one who declared in Deuteronomy 18 that another prophet is coming like me. And, and we know that's referenced, I think we'll look at that a little later, that that was referring to Jesus Christ coming so many years later. So Jesus told them, Moses wrote about me, read the scriptures, I am written throughout the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, we won't read all of this for time's sake. Luke 24, and we're, this is the disciples, the two disciples, Jesus has been uh, crucified, you know, and then there's two disciples here walking on what we call the road to Emmaus, because they were walking on a road that went to Emmaus. And so in verse 25, We'll pick up the conversation here. Luke chapter 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his eternal glory? The two had just recounted how the woman had come and told the disciples that they'd found the empty tomb and that they had seen angels and the, the, they didn't believe the ladies. But rather than Jesus saying, oh, foolish ones who didn't believe the report of the ladies who saw the angels, he said, 
foolish ones who have not believed all that the prophets have spoken. He referred to the Old Testament. He said, everything that's written about me, don't you get it? I am written throughout the Old Testament. And in verse 26, then he says, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And and we looked at one of these passages last week in Isaiah 53. It talks a lot about the suffering of Jesus Christ. It was written about the Lord. Psalm 22 is another passage that talks about, an Old Testament passage that talks about how Jesus would suffer. So in verse 27 in Luke 24, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He gave them a Bible lesson here on the Old Testament and how he was found throughout the Old Testament, beginning with Moses. Again, when it says with Moses, that's the first five books, the Pentateuch. So beginning all the way back at the beginning, probably in Genesis, and then carrying on through all the prophets, Jesus told them everything about the Messiah. Now, if you you look back at the beginning of this on the road to Emmaus, it says it's a seven-mile journey. If you do the math on a probably normal walking pace, I don't imagine they were speed running along while they were going. They were probably, you know, fairly leisurely walking along on this journey. You're looking at a three or four hour study that Jesus did with them throughout the Old Testament, showing where Jesus is found in the Old Testament. This is a huge topic. Jesus revealed to them scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture and said, here I am in the Old Testament. That's the author's intent. Sometimes when an author writes a book, they don't intend you to read anything into the book. Sometimes when an author uh, writes a book, they intend you to find things in what they wrote. They're they're painting imagery or, or parallels and so on. Well, we know that God intended us to find Jesus throughout the Old Testament. He said so. He even taught his disciples how to do it, and and it took hours. God intends to open scripture to us. And let's look at this, because this is what he did to these on the road to Emmaus. In verses um, 31 and 32, verse 31, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Like our hearts were on fire literally while Jesus was going over these passages with us. So the author of the scriptures put himself throughout the scriptures and it's our job to find him there. Not our job, that's not a good word, but we can, you know, he intends for us to do that. A main reason that we have the Old Testament is to reveal and to prove Jesus there. It's interesting, in verse 16 of this passage, so back a little bit towards the beginning, we didn't read it, it says in verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes could not see him. And then down in verse 32, they said, while he opened to us the scriptures. So their eyes were opened. They understood you know, at the beginning of this journey, this, this seven-mile journey, they knew the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. They were Israelites. They were students of the word. They knew it very well, but their eyes weren't opened. They didn't see. At the end of this journey, their eyes were open, and they understood Jesus as revealed in the Old Testament. It's amazing. Like I said, I'm excited about this. Hopefully you are, too we now will reference some passages. It's, there's so much here, we just don't have time to go into all of it. But in the, in the uh, book of Acts, so now the early church, Jesus has, has died and risen again, and the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter two. And after that happens, Peter stands up and he preaches to everyone who, who's listening. He actually preaches three sermons, Acts chapter two, Acts chapter three, and Acts chapter four, are the three first recorded sermons of Peter. And when you read through these, each sermon, he refers to several Old Testament passages to prove Jesus. 
He doesn't say like, look guys, we saw Jesus. We saw him do all these miracles. We saw him rise from the dead. He has to be the Messiah, so believe. He didn't do that. He went back to the Old Testament and said, look, here's Jesus in the Old Testament. This proves him. Therefore, you should believe. He refers to Joel and says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved to that Old Testament prophecy. He refers to different chapters of the book of Psalms. He refers to the passage in Deuteronomy where Moses says that a like prophet would come. And Peter says, Jesus is the prophet that Moses was talking about. He refers to Psalms 22 where Jesus or the psalmist said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus did that. He referred to the rejected cornerstone in Psalms chapter 118. And he said, Jesus is the rejected cornerstone. Psalms paints this. Now it's been fulfilled. So these first three sermons that Peter gives, we don't have time to look through them. But when you do, study in your Bible and look back and say, wow, they are pointing to all these passages that prove Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Get there, Acts 5, 42. It says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. How did they preach and teach that Jesus was the Christ? They proved him through the scriptures. In Acts chapter 7, we won't read this whole passage either. This is the account of another sermon by Stephen. And he's, you know, there kind of on trial. I want to look at, at uh, he, he actually goes through a, a lot of history of Israel. And he's, I think, making a few different points and a few different connections to Jesus. But I want to make this a uh, very clear one. In Acts chapter 5, verses, or Acts chapter 7, verses 35 through 39. Acts 7, 35 says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Here we have again reference to this prophecy from Deuteronomy that Moses gave. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. And he goes on and he keeps painting the picture. But what he's doing is he's saying, look, Moses came as your ruler and your redeemer. And you know what you did the first time? You rejected him. He's, Moses was the one who said there's another prophet coming. But Moses was God's chosen. And what he's doing is he's painting Moses as an Old Testament type of Jesus who would come as the ruler and the redeemer of Israel. And yet they rejected him just like they did Moses. It's fascinating. In Acts chapter 8, we have the account of Philip and the, the Ethiopian, the eunuch. And Philip hears the Ethiopian reading a passage. The passage is actually Isaiah 53 that we went over last week. And so Philip asks him, do you understand what you're, what you're reading? And the Ethiopian goes, I don't get it. Was this written about the prophet himself or was he prophesying about somebody else? What does this mean? And in this passage in Acts chapter eight, it says, Philip started with Isaiah 53 and went through the scriptures with the Ethiopian proving Jesus. He went through the Old Testament with him. I have, by the way, all of these, if you want a copy of my notes, I will give them to you later. Just ask me. It's a lot of scripture. Understand that. Acts chapter 9, verse 22, it talks about Paul confounding the Jews, proving that Jesus was the Christ. How would Paul prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ? with the word that the Jews had, with the Old Testament scripture. That's the only way the Jews would have believed what he was saying. 
And so he used what he knew very well. Paul knew the Old Testament really, really well. But just like the ones we read about earlier, he missed Jesus. His eyes were blinded until he had relationship with Jesus. And then they were wide open. And he saw Jesus throughout the Old Testament and actually used the Jews' very own Old Testament to prove the Messiah that they had rejected. In Acts 10, 43, Peter here tells Cornelius that all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receive forgiveness of sins through his name. All the prophets bear witness, Peter said. Acts chapter 13. There's more. It keeps going. Acts chapter 13 and uh, verses 14 and 15. This is a long passage here. We'll just read a couple verses. Acts 13, 14 and 15. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, being to Paul and his companions, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement to us or for the people, say it. And so Saul stood up. He's like, yeah, I got something I can talk about. I have something to share. And he did. And he goes on and he shares um, about Old Testament history and about Jesus and we're going to fast forward here to verse 27. This is what Paul says. Acts 13, 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. So Paul said, they hear the word preached every Sabbath, but they missed the, utterance of the utterances of the prophets and they actually fulfilled these very prophecies when they condemned Jesus to die. And they didn't even know it because they missed it. And then verse 29, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, who carried it out? The ones who had him killed and they didn't even know it, but they carried out everything written about Jesus. They took him down from the tree, from the cross, and laid him in a tomb, and God raised him from the dead. Wow. Acts chapter 17. We won't read this, these ones, but Acts 17, the first three verses, says that Paul's custom was to go into the synagogue and to talk about Jesus. It was his custom to do this. And further on in Acts 17, verses 10 through 12, we have the familiar passage that talks about the Bereans. And it talks about how noble the Bereans were because they would search the scriptures to see if they were true. And we, we, we hear that reference for how we should verify things in the word of God, which is really good to do. What the Bereans were verifying, though, was the message of Jesus. So Paul was painting for them, going through the Old Testament with them, proving Jesus from the scriptures, and the Bereans went to the Old Testament to verify that these verses were indeed accurate about Jesus. So they used the Old Testament to believe on the evidence they were given that Jesus was the Messiah. There's more. Acts 18, Apollos does this. He powerfully refutes um, the Jews by showing them that Jesus was the Christ in Acts 18. Just a few left. Again, I'm skipping over some as well. So if you want these, just ask me for them. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. This is what we call a creed. A creed would be beliefs. And uh, this is probably the oldest creed that exists. It's, it's thought that it was within a, a handful of years, within five years, people think, of when Jesus died and rose again. So this is a very early church uh, beliefs. See what it says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament. So he's saying these Early, early, early church beliefs, they thought it important enough to put in this belief that Jesus died in accordance with the scripture. 
and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Skip over a few. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll end this section on this one, just for time's sake. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. We'll read this passage. 2 Corinthians 3, 12, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, so that they wouldn't see the glory of God fading, is what it sounds like here. You know, when Moses was wearing that veil and it would go out. But in verse 14, their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, when they read the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And it carries on. And the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So somebody's freedom. They can see what the Lord wrote throughout the Scriptures, intending to prove and show Jesus Christ through the Old Testament. But it takes an unhardening of the heart. It takes a relationship with Jesus to see that. You can't get the main point of the Bible without Jesus. There are people who know the Bible very, very well, and they would call themselves atheists. But you can't get the main point of the Bible without knowing Jesus Christ, because he proves it and he reveals it. So that's the end of that section. There is so much more in here. The New Testament authors and Jesus himself pointed back so often to the Old Testament. And that's a main reason, again, why we have the Old Testament is for going through it and seeing Jesus. Obviously, there's other reasons we have it, but that is a main one. God's the author of it. And he said, you will find me. You will find Jesus in the scriptures. And so here's some examples of how we find or or where things that we find types of Jesus in the Old Testament. We don't have time to go into any of these uh, today. This would be a a half a year study every single week if we were going to do this. And I'm not kidding. It would be huge. <clears throat> but scriptures in the Old Testament that paint a picture of Christ or reveal an aspect of Jesus Christ or, or a type, we'll say. These can be a several different areas. One area is people. And you can look at some people in the Old Testament that are a type of Christ. Some of these, the New Testament clearly says are, and that's the one we're going to look at in a little bit. We're going to look at Adam, and the Bible specifically says Adam is a type. It uses that word, a type of Christ. But people that you'll find in the Old Testament who are a type of Jesus, you can learn in aspects or aspects of Jesus, is Adam, Melchizedek, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, and some of, the Hebrews, or some of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, at least some of them. I'm not studied up on all that. But very clearly, these ones specifically are a type of the Messiah who would come. Things. The tabernacle of Moses. That's another one of those. Why do we have all of this detail recorded in there? Well, God put it there for a reason. It is a type. Uh, we also mentioned the bronze serpent earlier. Is a, a, a type of what Jesus would do. These are all areas of study that you could go into a lot of looking in detail on these. Events that are clearly said are a type, the sacrifices of Israel, the feasts of Israel, like the Passover, Jesus being the Passover lamb, and marriage is a type of Christ. So let's look at, at Adam. These are ju- that's just, again, that's only some of the things, not all of them. And uh, we're not giving any details on those. So I encourage you to study. And when you read, look for Jesus. But let's look at the specific example of Adam being a type of Jesus Christ. And we're going to go to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Romans 5, verse 12. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, before the law of Moses was there, but sin is not counted where there is no law. <clears throat> Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So that would be before the law. Death reigned from the beginning until the law. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. So actually now it paints Adam as a, an anti-type. So Adam's not the same in these ways. But it does say Adam's a type of the one who was to come or a type of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul carries on here in verses 15 through 21 that we won't go into. But it says one man's disobedience Adam's led to the trespass of many, all humanity, all have sinned, all have come short of the glory of God. One man's obedience, Jesus Christ, led to the justification of everyone, the forgiveness of sins. So in some ways, Adam is a direct representation of Jesus, and in other ways, he's an, an inverted or an opposite representation of Jesus. The types of Jesus in the Old Testament that will, if you study these, you'll find out they bring out the failures of humanity as well. There is no perfect Old Testament type because then you'd have a Messiah in the Old Testament, right? But Jesus, you know, you don't have Jesus till you have Jesus. These are just types. These paint a picture. Um, they're, not, they're not perfect in themselves. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 23, or sorry, chapter 1, verses 22 23, we won't read this, but it talks about how Jesus has all dominion. Jesus was given dominion over everything. Adam also was given dominion. It says in Genesis, I think it's chapter 1, verse 26, he was given dominion over the earth and told to rule over it. That dominion was damaged after the fall. Part of the curse said the ground would be difficult, would not yield, it would not be as easy as it was. So in, in some ways, that dominion was damaged. But in that way, though, Adam would be a type of Jesus. Dominion, Jesus, given. Adam was given dominion. Jesus was given dominion and power and authority because of his obedience to his father and his sacrifice on the cross. It says in, in, that Adam was made in the image of God, right? We know this, that man is made in the image of God. But of Jesus, it says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, that he is the image of God. So Adam is a type, you know, and I guess in that way you could say we all are in a way. We're made in the image of God. Therefore, we're a type, but very imperfectly so. But Jesus is the image. He is the true, well, he's, he is God, but he, he is the image. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. And now we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. And we're not going to read all this. This is the very famous husbands and wives passage. But near, at the end of this, when Paul, you know, he's gone through different aspects of husbands and wives and so on. He says in, in Ephesians 5, verses 31 through 32, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So here, Paul, he refers back to Genesis. He refers back to Genesis chapter 2, where you have Adam and you have Eve, and you have them coming together as the first marriage. And in, I think it's Genesis 2.24. It says, you know, therefore a man shall leave his father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's, I don't, hopefully I'm quoting that correctly, but that's the passage. And then we have Paul referring to that in Ephesians in the New Testament, saying, this is a great mystery. But I am saying that it refers to Jesus Christ and his bride to Jesus and his church. So here we have not only an Adam being a type of Jesus, but also that first marriage and marriages thereafter revealing 
something special, some truths about God and his church, Jesus and his church. And so we're going to, uh, to look through some verses back in Genesis chapter 2. We won't be too much longer. But back in Genesis chapter 2, and let's look at some aspects of that first marriage, some things that were said, and some truths we can learn about how this relates to Jesus and his church. It's amazing. Here's another principle we can take when we're going back to the Old Testament. When the New Testament clearly identifies a type, so not, not a verse. Before we said if it identifies a passage and says this is about Jesus, we know it is. When the New Testament clearly identifies a type. So Paul says this, this marriage between a man and a woman, they become one flesh and it's a mystery. I'm telling you this is about Jesus and his church. It's a type. So when the New Testament clearly identifies a type in the Old Testament, it's, it's legitimate. It's proper to go back and look at what it says in the Old Testament to see how that applies and what we can learn from it. Because the author said, this is a type of this. So let's go look what the author said. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Genesis 2, and in verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And if we find in verse 20, it says at the end of verse 20, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There wasn't one. Adam had gone through, he named all the animals, he'd seen them all, but there was nobody like Adam. And so God said, it's not good for Adam to be the only one. I will make a helper who's fit for him. And, you know, as God looks down at fallen creation, there's nobody fit to be his bride. There's nobody good enough to be the bride of the Son of God. Remember, type, the marriage, a type of Christ and his church. So God looked down and said, there's nobody fit. And so God sent his only son to make the bride fit for his son. In verses 19 through 20, Eve was not made like the rest of creation. We said that. She was actually made from Adam's substance. She was made from Adam. She was not an animal. She was made from him. And this is also a picture of the church. We are made from Jesus. We've been born again when we accept Jesus as our Savior and we're made into a new person. And now we belong to part of the body of Christ. So just like Eve was not created, she was not formed of the dust. She was made, nothing else was made like her. She was made right from Adam. It says from a rib that was taken from him and God formed Eve. In the same way, the only way we join the body of Christ, there's no other way, and we're not, it's not a natural process. We are formed when we accept Jesus as our Savior. We become part of that body of Christ. Verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Adam was put into a deep sleep. Here's another one of those, what, passages? Like, so why did God choose to do that? But in the Bible, sleep is often a picture of death. And it was only through the death of Jesus Christ that salvation was offered. Was, we could only be brought into his family through the death of Jesus. Eve was made through Adam being put into a deep sleep. Again, Christ and his, the church, his bride, and the first man and woman, and how they came together. Verses 22 and 23. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man... From the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is, at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. So God, it says, took a rib from Adam and formed the woman. Now, I don't know what you think about this. That doesn't sound pleasant. And I don't know what the, the after effect was for Adam. You know, 
I have no idea. But I know that nowadays, if anybody were to go in and take a part of your body out, what are you left with afterwards? A scar where they went in, right? The Bible doesn't implicitly say this, but it's possible that Adam was scarred from this procedure. I mean, he says, God took a rib, but Adam says, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That's a pretty, you know, full rounded statement. Um, sounds more involved than just like, oh, I'm missing a rib, you know. Um, but who's the only one with scars in heaven right now? Jesus. He was scarred for you and I. Adam, and doesn't implicitly say this, but you, you could imagine anyways, scarred for his bride, for Eve to be created. And so Jesus Christ was pierced for us. His side was pierced. It says by his stripes, we were, we were healed. Adam was the only thing, if he indeed was scarred, he was the only thing in creation at that point that had scars. Jesus is the only one in heaven with those scars. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So it's interesting. In the beginning, you have Adam and no Eve. Part of Adam is taken out and now you have Adam and Eve. But then they get married and then you have one again. So you go from one to two to one. And this is part of what Paul's saying, like, this is a mystery. But I'm writing that this is about Christ and his church. You know, we're made, again, from Jesus, the donation of his sacrifice, his bloodshed on that cross. We are brought into his family. And so now we're born again. But in the future, at the marriage supper, we become one with Jesus. And there's new Testament scriptures we could go through on that, but the bride of Christ, now the two become one. I don't even know all that that means in eternity, but it's amazing. Verse 25, the end of this chapter in this passage, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And there's another one you read through that and go, why is that in there? Was, you know, was that necessary? It begins painting the picture of what happened in chapter 3. But as part of this husband and wife being one and Jesus Christ and his church, you know, that being a picture of Jesus and his church, when somebody's naked and unashamed, the imagery is you, they know everything about you. You're not hiding anything. There's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And so this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. In, in this passage, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, we'll, we'll go back to where we we're talking about this in the New Testament. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the bride of Christ is perfected, is, is made perfect through Christ Jesus and, and without blemish. And so in Christ, I'm not only forgiven, I'm relieved of shame. So that's the connection here to the Old Testament. You've got these ones, they're not wearing any clothes, but they're not ashamed. There, there's, there's nothing you know, say this carefully, there's nothing in the way of their relationship. They, they're familiar with each other. They're not ashamed of anything. We know that when they sinned in chapter three, that all of a sudden they were ashamed. Sin brought shame. Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice and the forgiveness of sin, removed the shame and restored the relationship. So amazing parallels there. That's just one passage from the New Testament to the Old. Marriage between a man and a woman is a mystery, but it's like Christ and his church. Here's some ways that it's like Christ and his church. And we went through that. So let's look at why. We're going to wrap up here shortly. Why look for Jesus in the Old Testament? How does this apply to me? This is really this, this part of the message because we can go through all this and go, wow, that's really cool, but, but what do I do with it? 
Well, first off, it proves who Jesus was. It's humanly impossible for somebody to fulfill everything Jesus did in the Old Testament and the prophecies about his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. It's impossible for somebody to fake that. I may have shared this before. You know, they've done, done numeric, or not numeric, probability studies. That's not even the word. There's a bigger word, but I'm not great with big words. They've done statistics studies. That's the one in probability studies to say, well, how, what are the chances actually of Jesus fulfilling a certain amount of prophecies? And, and there was a whole group of people that did the studies and they did it very carefully. And uh, so they came up with this, and I'm just going to paint a picture for you. For Jesus to fulfill eight specific prophecies, and there are multitudes more than eight in the Old Testament, but for him to, to fulfill eight of those would be like filling the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, marking one of them, hiding it in the pile across the state of Texas, somehow skydiving into that pile of coins that's this deep all the way across the state of Texas, which by the way, if you've driven across Texas, it takes you like one leg of our journey was 12 hours and that wasn't even the whole way. It's probably 16 hours to drive across at the speed limit there, I think was 80. It's a huge state. So two feet deep across a huge state, you mark one coin, you skydive and you pick up that one coin out of all of them that are in the state of Texas. That's the probability of one person completing eight of the prophecies about Jesus. If I remember the, the imagery right, if you were to fulfill 16 of the prophecies and they picked specific ones and they went through and they, they actually came up with the probabilities of each prophecy and then added them all together, however that works mathematically, 16 of them would be like, a ball of silver dollars that went from here to the sun 30 times that distance. And you have one silver dollar in that ball and you pick that one. So we're talking, it's impossible humanly for somebody to do that. So the Old Testament proves Jesus beyond a doubt. There has been many and I'm not making up this, many lawyers who went to the Bible to disprove Jesus, and I say lawyers because they're ones that are good at looking at evidence and trying to, to put the evidence together. That's what they do for their living. They went through and they put together the evidence. They went there, they wanted to disprove Jesus, and they end up being believers at the end because the Old Testament proves him beyond a shadow of a doubt. So that's one reason why you know, it gets rid of doubt in our life. When we find Jesus in the Old Testament, we're like, wow, how did he fulfill this? How did he fulfill that? This was written about him how many years before he was actually here? And it proves him in our own heart. We don't need to get out and do debates about why it's true, but we need to know in our own heart. It proves to us that he's the Messiah. We also learn more about Jesus by studying those types, like by studying the, the marriage type, that we know is a type of Christ in his church. By studying that, we learn aspects of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We also, each response of Jesus that we find, I'll say in the Old Testament, gives us a key for how we should respond to something. It says in Psalms 69 verse 4, my enemies have hated me without a cause. My enemies have hated me without a cause. And it tells us in the New Testament that this refers to Jesus. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. There's many verses in this one that refer to Jesus. And so Matthew Henry said this about that psalm. He said, we're apt to use this, this phrase, my enemies have hated me without a cause, in justification of our passion against those that hate us that we never gave them cause to hate us. Like, hey, the point is like, what did I do? Why do they hate me? He said, we often take that approach. But he goes on to say, but it is rather an argument why we should bear it patiently because then we suffer as Christ did. And may we expect that God will give us redress. An old word. 
But he says, look, the point is when we see a passage in the Old Testament that is clearly about Jesus, we look at that and go, okay, that's about Jesus. Now I'm going to apply it to me for how I should live. Jesus, when my en- he said, my enemies have hated me without a cause, what did he do? He didn't fight back. He closed his mouth. He didn't get angry. So therefore, I can apply these things about Jesus to my own walk with the Lord and how I respond in different situations. There's other verses we could go in on that. I've already skipped over uh, some of them, you know, where it says the Old Testament was given for our learning, I think is the passages in Romans 16. But it says that after it gives an example about Jesus and something Jesus did, as clearly said in the Old Testament, says we can learn from that because we can apply that to how we live. It also gives us a greater understanding of how a hardened heart veils the understanding. We see this in the New Testament, that they just didn't get it. The Jews didn't get it. They were blinded. Their hearts were hardened. So even though the scriptures were there, they missed it. They didn't see it. And it helps us to understand also that we don't know everything. There's a lot. There's a lot in this study that I don't know. I don't know yet. But the Lord can reveal it. And he can make those connections clear to the Old Testament passages. God can reveal his scripture to us and where his son is found in the Bible. So my conclusion is really simple. When you read your Bible, look for Jesus. Especially in the Old Testament, but when you're going through the New Testament even, it's been an eye-opener for me to see how many times they referred to the Old Testament. So no matter where you're reading, Look for how it points to Jesus Christ. Why don't we close in prayer and we'll just thank him. Thank the Lord for giving us his word and ask him to open our eyes to it. Lord, thank you so much for the scriptures that you gave to us. You are amazing, incredible that you gave us your word and you put yourself and various aspects in your word and you want it revealed, Lord, and you did reveal it to many of the New Testament authors, Lord. And so I pray that as we read your word, we would understand more about you. Isn't that the point, Lord? That's what scripture is here for us for, that we would see you and understand you and grow closer to you and grow in our walk with you and be able to apply these things to our lives more, Lord. Open your word to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.